1: NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 9, Episode 9. This one was The Case of the Disappearance of Moore Murray. Had Tim and Lance on from the Missing Moore Murray podcast to help me break down the case. Uh, you guys have a lot of good questions. We tried to do a little research. I reached out to Templary uh, before getting on the air to help clear some of these things up. So hopefully we'll answer all of your questions. Uh, and Zach, as always, has done a little bit of extra research. So right for a short break, we'll get right into these questions. All right, so Mike's run through some of these questions with me uh, that you guys sent, so I could run them by Tim to get some of the answers. Uh, Mike, real quick, before we get into those, Zach has a piece of paper in front of him that I can see from my seat that has a name that's not addressed in those questions. And you said that you don't think we'll be able to get into this because it won't fit. So I'm going to make it fit like this. Zach, what did you write down on that yellow piece of paper? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I wrote down
2: the name Butch Atwood, mm-hmm. who was the bus driver that drove by was supposedly the second person to see her after the accident okay he has become kind of a uh, a unique individual in this case that a lot of people really don't know how to feel about him whether he is guilty or innocent or knows something a lot of people feel that he knows something that he's not well I, I believe that he's actually passed at this point uh-huh so now he can't say anything but I believe that you know a lot of people felt that he knew more than he was letting on through this
1: case okay so I did discuss that with Tim, even though it wasn't a question, because it's a question I had. Oh, good. I refer to him as uh, the bus driver. So I'm just going to read you my conversation with Tim that I had with him via text right before this. I said, was there an issue with the bus driver? Had a shady past or something like that? Tim said, nah, not really. Just the last person we know to have seen Mora. I think he exaggerated being an ex-cop in an article. I think he was like a crossing guard at some point or something. But no, he's not super shady.
2: Okay, so so some of the stuff that comes into question with him that isn't necessarily shady about his past uh-huh. is he has he he's in the bus, passes her, stops to talk to her. Mm-hmm. His story has actually changed a couple of times. Okay, in talking to her, was he the one? It was a tow truck, right? It, it, he wasn't the one
1: that asked that she told
2: she called AAA, was he? That is the one that
1: that, that was him. That okay, is yeah. him.
2: One of his stories is that she was in the car. Mm-hmm. Another one was she was outside the car and so intoxicated she, she was holding the car to stand up. Okay. So his story has changed a couple of times. And part of his story that's d- weird is he's a bus driver and he's coming home. Mm-hmm. And his girlfriend, his live-in girlfriend is also a bus driver. Okay. And they parked the buses in front of the house and the school put a spotlight out on these buses, to protect the buses, essentially. Right. He did not park there that night. He backed the bus into a completely different location. Mm-hmm. Went in the house. The story about him calling is strange because there's a couple different stories. There's one that he didn't call at all. The girlfriend called. Right. There's one that he called, but it was busy. And then the girlfriend called back for the police. Uh huh. But then he went and sat back in the bus until the police got According there. According to his girlfriend? According to both, both of them, the okay. girlfriend and him, that he went and sat back in the bus until the police arrived. Mm-hmm. With the bus being parked in a weird location. So th- th- there's, some, there's some weirdness there. And they say if he would have parked the bus where he normally parks it, he would have been in view of her car the entire time and would have clearly seen what happened.
1: Hmm. Interesting. I don't know. I remember when I was listening to the, the Moore and Murray podcast back in 2015, them touching on him. Mm-hmm. I felt like they had. And obviously, Tim thinks that he has been kind of he, he, obviously from our interactions, he doesn't suspect him. Mm-hmm. But that's interesting. I wonder how there's so much with this case in trying to look up some of these the answers to some of these questions. There's a lot of information and disinformation out. Like, if you go into Reddit, there's so many rabbit holes in spiraling arguments, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, this happened, somebody's stating something as fact that happened, and then somebody else is like, no, that's bullshit. That's not what this says and this says and this. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know.
2: Well, and from what I've found, and maybe this is wrong, again, part of that, is that it looks like he had since moved to Florida and passed away, which was another indicator that he knew You know, he was trying to get away from the area. Right, doesn't mean he really was but it's just a strange well and when did he move to Florida I don't know that was one I didn't know
1: yeah like if it was it a week later or was it years later yeah and as, and he did talk to the police that night mm-hmm. also I don't know I don't know if, if we if if butch Atwood should be uh, a person of interest or not it sounds like Tim doesn't think so I don't know mm-hmm. I don't know I mean I don't necessarily believe that he is a suspect but I think there's more there than he's letting on one way or the other all right well, all right well the There's your Butch Atwood from Zach's yellow piece of paper, and see what Mike now has on his white piece of paper.
0: All right, our first question comes from Katie. What are your thoughts on the police cover-up conspiracy theories, that a police officer picked up Maura, something went badly wrong, and that other police have covered up all these
1: years? I think that's a hell of a stretch. I mean, there's no evidence to support that. If there's multiple police officers heading to the scene and police officers investigating, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, so what, they, they put her in the back of a squad car? I mean, why? I mean there's there's the why, there's the how, like how would it get covered up? Why would the other cops cover it up? You know, like like just because oh well, yep, he abducted and murdered that lady, but you know, he's you know blue blood, he's 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 a cop so we're going to protect him. I just I just I don't see that as relevant. That being said also, I've never really researched that theory other than just, you know, kind of hearing it kind of blown off.
2: Yeah, I I don't really agree with it. I just think that at a certain point, when you start adding more and more individuals to a idea or a, a conspiracy theory, the the harder it is to keep a secret. So there's just too many people involved. The the more people you get, what do they say? Loose lips sink ships. I mean, that's the, the idea is if one person does it, they might be able to get away with it. But by the time you continue to add and add and add and add, you
1: know, right. somebody's going to say something. All these years later, it's you know an international thing. There's a massive reward. Mm-hmm the fact that that everyone would be keeping this quiet just doesn't seem plausible to me
0: lisa says it was mentioned that one or some of the neighbors were sketchy did they have records anything specific
1: all right let, let me uh let me again jump back to my conversation with tim this morning about this so i don't i don't get anything wrong here and this ties into not only you know he'd said that there were some some of the the neighbors had you know some sketchy pasts and then um, it leads us into the A-frame theory, which we'll we'll, we'll touch on here too. So I asked him about this. He said, "Yeah, there were some records. The police search that happened in April of 2019 was on a house near the accident site. If they found more there, it would have directly led back to the locals with records, including incest, sexual abuse, etc. Pretty gross, but only through location and proximity of Moore's accident is there any connection to Mora. So you've got people." Nearby locals, not neighbors, right? That 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 have these these records of again incest, sexual assault, sexual abuse, but those people have no connection to Mora's case. They, you know they they don't live right there. There's no you know they're not you know immediately right next to where the accident scene was. But then we have so I asked us if that was the people from the A-frame house. So this is A-frame house theory, which Zach, can you explain a little bit what that is? So there is a there's a house about a
2: mile away from the crash site. It's an A-frame style house, which is kind of where they come up with the A-frame theory. And the gentleman that lived there, his brother gave, turned over a knife to Fred Murray, Maura's father, that
1: possibly had human blood on him. It was a, it was a rusty knife he gave to, to Moore's dad. And, mm-hmm. and I think he even said, I think my my brother killed her yeah. with this knife. Yep, And then at some, I don't know exactly how they got there, but at some
2: point they took cadaver dogs to this house and the dogs hit on a closet in the house that that they said contained human blood.
1: Not human blood, but a decomposing human
2: body. Okay. And they had taken some DNA samples, but nothing seems to have ever happened with those DNA samples. Yeah, there was
1: like blood tests where they said that it seems like there was blood from a male, possibly a female, Mm -hmm. but no DNA results from that. Um, And so that was the house where, they eventually went and did the the excavation.
2: Yeah, but that was much later, and I right. believe the new owners had done a lot of remodeling, so a lot of that stuff had been transferred out of there.
1: Right, right. So now with that being said, let me go back to my conversation with Tim. So he was talking about those sexual abuse, incest, all those people with records. And I said, are those the people in the A-frame house? And he said, actually, no. The A-frame is about a mile away. Had a guy named Claude Moulton living there. Claude's brother said he gave Fred Murray, which is Moore's dad, a rusty knife and said he thought his brother killed Moore. But the police tested it, and they also suggested the Moulton's were bad people, but after the new reward that was posted. Police tested the knife, and it didn't have Moore's blood on it. Lawrence Moulton is now deceased. He's Claude's brother. Always lots of rumors about them in the A-frame, but never any actual evidence. We've done extensive searches on the house with GPR and cadaver dogs. We got nothing. The police didn't seem too interested in that house, though. To be honest, is what he said. So, and that was the that was the incident where um, Tim and Tim and Lance had explained that the police kind of it was almost. He thinks it was more of a stunt because I mean there was there was issues. I did some reading where there was some of these neighbors were like trying to file trespassing charges and even lawsuits against the Murray family because they were trespassing on their property, doing all these searches. And they had made this big deal, and it was all on the internet, and they were really kind of honing in on this A-frame house. And so they ended up going in and, and, and doing a big excavation, made this big media event, just so they could come out and say, we dug it up, there was nothing there. Basically, like, why don't you let us do our job instead of you screwing all this up? Seems sketchy.
0: Lisa says, also, I think it was somewhat insinuated, but is there some thought that Mara hurt someone in a hit and run on campus? She had already totaled her dad's car. It sounds like she was under a lot of pressure and things kept piling on. Maybe I'm reading too much into that hit-and-run possibility. This isn't to suggest she hurt herself or was running away, just that it could explain her state of
1: mind and how that affected her actions. So there are people that have suggested that that might have been part of why Moore ran away. So there was was a guy on campus hit by a car who ended up in a coma. It was a pretty serious accident, and it was a hit-and-run, and they thought, well, maybe... That was Mora. Maybe that's what led to her running away. There's a lot of different theories around it, but it seems like that's not a real possibility. Uh, she was at work the night of the hit and run, and like 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 she was literally clocked in at work at the time when the when the hit and run occurred. And so there's people that have theorized that she could have, between meetings or calls or whatever, that she could have left and went out and hit him. But then that would have meant she went and did that and then went right, right back to work. You know, that she snuck out between.
2: Well, and that was part of the theory of her of her running. If if she was involved was she was on the clock and wasn't supposed to be out. Right. And that was part of the theory of why she why it was a hit and run. Then if she would hit this guy, she's like, oh, shit, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be at work.
1: Right. So I, but I don't think there's a lot of evidence that there's a lot more evidence to, to suggest that it wasn't her. Correct. And it wasn't uncommon. I think Tim said there were uh, on that campus hit and runs were not uncommon at all. And I think he said there was like that year there had been like seven hit and runs on campus, you know, bunch of drunk college kids that aren't supposed to be drinking or for whatever reason, uh, they're they're not sticking around when they get in those accidents. But it, it it sounds like you know it's a it's a theory that would you know it'd be it'd make the case a little more interesting, maybe give us a little more information. But it's not, I mean you'd have to you really got to do a lot of mental gymnastics to make it work that that Mora was actually the one who was involved in the hit and run.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of red herrings in this case, and I think this is just another one of them. Right
1: Plus.
2: Another one that I don't think is going to come up in the questions is the, the handkerchief in the tailpipe of the car. That I think that's just another red herring because there's stories that her dad suggested her to do that to help with the car, the way that make the car run. Right. And, and they, they kind of have theorized that she did it after she got in the accident, trying to get the car to turn back over. Right.
1: And somebody had asked, I don't think, Mike, you have it, but I did see somebody had asked about uh, how do they know that she tried to start the car seven times? Mm-hmm. It's because your car has the diagnostics in your car. You can actually print off and it's almost like a black box on an airplane and you can see what happened. So you could see that she was trying to start the car mm-hmm. from the information from the diagnostic module that's, that's in the vehicle. And yeah, so that was the theory was, was that, you know, her dad had told her because the, the car was, was, was down a cylinder, wasn't working. It told her to put a tailpipe in so that I think so. She, I think it's maybe because of the sound or the smoke that was blowing out to keep her from getting in trouble, but mm-hmm. also to keep it running. I don't know. I'm not, I'm a little bit mechanically inclined, not a lot, but my thought was maybe that was the idea was to create a little more compression back in the engine to get it to run properly.
2: Yeah, and if she didn't honestly know anything about it and her dad told her that, it could be just
1: something she's trying to do to help.
2: Right. I don't think it's as sinister as people are making
1: it out to be. No, I, the idea was at first, and I remember when I first heard about it on the podcast way back, you know, five years ago, I remember thinking like, oh, someone was, you know, maybe when she stopped at the liquor store or the gas station, put that in her tailpipe so their car would break down so they could abduct her. But then we find out from her dad, who identified the, the handkerchief as his that he the one he gave her, that you know, he had told her to do that to help it run better and probably get, you know, it probably wouldn't have had any change in whether or not the car would run in that situation. But if she doesn't understand cars and doesn't understand engines and just knows well, Dad said when I'm having trouble with it running, to put this in the tailpipe, so let me try that and see if that does it.
0: Sherry says, "Is there any possible way Israel Keys had anything to do with her going missing?"
1: No, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say no so uh, bluntly like that. But so Israel Keys is maybe possibly a serial killer, and and that's he's a guy that I don't want to get too in depth because at some point I want to do an episode on the Israel on Israel Keys in the case either throughout the rest of the season nine or when we start the case sub podcast next year, um, but. He for sure committed a murder. And through police interviews and interrogations, people believe that he that he committed maybe another double homicide and then maybe up to six more. So he's like a serial killer, maybe, but also maybe not. It may just be that he was kind of taking credit for things. But, you know, he was he was known I think his victim, Samantha Koenig, I believe was her name. He's got ties to Alaska, and I'm trying I think. She that she was killed in Alaska, uh, but he had worked around the country. But but anyway, as far as uh, there was theories about him being involved in mora's case because he had said you know, he preferred the East Coast, you know, or being out east. That was his, quote, stomping grounds. But evidence really indicates, you know, you can track his travel because this isn't like old. old We're talking like 2012, you know, just like eight years ago that, that he was that he was active or when he was when he was arrested. But they can track his movements, and he was all over all over the country, and they actually have at the time that Mora went missing, police records show that Israel Keys was in Utah, okay They can see where he went he had rented a car, and the car had to, as part of the rental agreement had to stay within the within the state of Utah, and when he returned it, he'd only driven and it was through the period when Mora went missing. He'd only driven, he had driven 500 miles on it, which is obviously not enough miles to get from Utah to New Hampshire and back. Now, people, again, with mental gymnastics have said, well, maybe he rented the car and used the car to get to an airport and then got on a plane and took the plane to New Hampshire to go find this, you know, it's a a stretch.
2: You know, the, the theories with, like, the serial killer really is hard for me to understand or believe. Just because of the timing of it there there's about a seven minute window that she's not in sight so so you're gonna tell me that a serial killer just happens to stumble across her on this back
1: road in that seven minute window right and and again if we're talking a serial killer someone looking like looking for a victim like if Mora was my opinion is if Mora was abducted, this was foul play that it was by sheer happenstance you so she was a victim of opportunity mm-hmm. for someone no one could have planned for her to be right there, right then, and have this very, and there's people driving down the road. You know, oh, here's, a, at this time, at this place, I've got this seven-minute window when I can get in and abduct this girl. That, that's just not the way it happened, I don't think. No, well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, there's there's a seven-minute window where she's she's out of sight
2: of people. Right. So, so just just by happenstance, we're going to say chances are this guy happens to drive down this road out of any given road during that seven-minute right. window and has time to get her. You know I mean? It just doesn't line up in my head.
1: Yeah, I, I 100% agree. John says, did AAA ever show up? No. So interesting thing about that is there were there were a few questions several people have asked, like, was it ever confirmed that she actually called AAA or roadside assistance? Did they ever show up? There was no cell service on that road. And according to Tim, still to this day, there is no cell service on that road. And I'm not talking about bad cell service. I mean, no cell service. So, yeah, they have Moore's phone record. She did not call anyone. And she couldn't have called anyone if she tried, which I'm sure she did try to call somebody. So, no, when she told Butch Atwood that she had called AAA, that was absolutely a lie. And according to Butch Atwood, that was part of the reason why he called the police, because she told him, I've called roadside assistance. Everything's okay, And he knew because he lived there that she couldn't have called roadside assistance because there's no cell coverage uh, on that stretch of road. So, no, they never came because she never called them because there was no cell service.
0: Sarah says her sister was on True Crime Garage, interviewed by the captain. There was some new info on why she went up there involving having a suspended license in New Hampshire, which had to be cleared in person before buying a new vehicle, thus not wanting New Hampshire police on scene at her crash. The 107 Degree podcast
1: has some more info on this. Are there any updates along those lines? So that seemed like a stretch to me, but I did ask Tim about it today. And this is what he texted me. He said... There is truth to her having a suspended license in New Hampshire at the time she went missing, but based on the route we think she took, or at least where she ended up, we believe it's really unlikely she was trying to get her license reinstated. Had she gotten pulled over in New Hampshire, she might have gotten arrested or her car towed. But she didn't have a suspended license in Massachusetts, so so what are you saying? Like it's a big risk. It's late at night, you know. So so she did her her license wasn't suspended in Massachusetts where she was living at UMass. But then she would go into New Hampshire with the suspended license that could have caused her to get arrested. And it just that, you know, doing that at night, it just it just doesn't make sense. It's not that it's not it's not that it's impossible, but it just I have a hard time thinking that that was the reason why, you know, she calls her. She emails a professor, says there's a death in the family. I get that. Yeah, maybe that's why she didn't want the police to come is because she had the suspended license. I, I think that could play into why she was trying to get away from the police coming. I think that could have played into her maybe trying to walk somewhere and get away from the vehicle. But I don't think that was the purpose for her being there. Maybe I'm wrong on this, but I don't think it was that late at night. I think it was like
2: 740.
1: Well, right. But I mean, it's after what I'm getting at is, you know, the the DMV or Secretary of State or whatever they have in New Hampshire is closed. Mm -hmm. It's dark out, you know, so it's not like middle of the night, but it's after dark. It's after business hours. I get what
2: you're saying. I just was thinking that, you know, portraying it too late at night
0: no purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Christine says, was the alcohol she bought left in her car? Good question. Uh, not clear answers. Some people think they have clear answers. They may, uh, but I've read a lot of different people say a lot of different things. Zach, w- we were talking about this earlier, w- said you heard of several places there was wine coolers. Yeah, that, that's a couple stories I heard was the...
2: They had found the alcohol that she had purchased from the liquor store and wine coolers, which weren't on that receipt, weren't purchased at that same time. Right.
1: But then it sounds like we found other evidence that say there wasn't wine coolers. See, I had never heard wine coolers. I had always heard there was a box of wine mm-hmm. that was kind of smashed in the back seat and, it was in, and some of it was gone. Uh, one of the big things was the, she had a receipt from where she had spent like 40 bucks or, or whatever, you know, from shortly before where she had stopped at the liquor store and bought some vodka.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the vodka wasn't in the car. And so that led led down a lot of rabbit holes of, did she take the vodka with her? You know, did she leave and get in a car with somebody, with her alcohol? There's also, she had a a soda bottle, like a Coke bottle or something, in the car um, that, I, I don't know if this is proven. I've heard it stated as fact. I don't know if it is fact that she was, like, pouring the wine into the Coke bottle or maybe mixing the Coke with the vodka in the bottle, but the vodka bottles weren't found, so... It definitely, it, to me, it seems as though she was drinking while she was driving. That mm-hmm. she had got some booze and she was drinking while she was driving.
2: Yeah, I, I could say that That from everything we've heard, there was, the alcohol was found. The alcohol was found there. Maybe not the same amount of alcohol she purchased, but right. there was alcohol found in her vehicle.
0: Shelly says, what do you make of the dispatch report stating a witness saw a man smoking a cigarette near Maura's car? Do you think someone was with her that night?
1: Well, to be clear, no one. There's no report of anyone who says they saw a man smoking a cigarette in her car. One of the neighbors, uh, I can't remember her name, it was a female that they could they could see the crime the the accident scene from her house, had told police that she saw a red glowing light inside the car that she assumed was a cigarette. The, you know, the, you know, the the end of the cigarette will glow when you're smoking it. But you know, other theories are that the light she was seeing very well could have been. Mora trying to get a signal, you know, Mora cell phone, when she's trying to get a signal on her phone because of the distance away. But, but no one actually said they saw a person with her. They just it was like assumed there was a person with her because I believe because Mora didn't smoke, and if someone was smoking in the car, then there must have been somebody there. But all that was just someone who saw a red light in the car.
0: Jamie says, "I still believe there's a chance she just went and lived her life somewhere else." Do you think there's
1: a chance, even a slim one? I don't because I don't. Number one. Kind of getting back to what Zach was saying earlier, I don't think that that secret would be able to would be able to be kept at this point. There would be too many people involved. Too many people would know, and it's be, you know because of the podcast, it's and the TV show, it's been a you know an international story. I mean, millions and millions and millions of people know about this story. I just don't think you keep that secret, and also it just where would she go? You know, the the only way that works is if someone she knows picks her up, or if somebody picks her up. But again, then then why would that person still keep that secret? It it definitely wasn't a rendezvous point, you know. Meet me in the side of the road, in the middle of you know Route One Twelve, and I'll get out of my car and get into your car. You know, there there was an accident, so that wasn't a planned place for her to stop. She couldn't because there was no cell service. She couldn't have called someone to say, "Hey, I couldn't make it to the place we were meeting, but now I'm here on this road." So it it just doesn't. And you know, in one way, she can walk off into the you know down a trailhead into the mountains and disappear but like she couldn't have survived Uh for very long in those conditions i i i I think there's a possibility that she wandered off and was lost to the elements even though i think that we would have found i think the scent dogs would have been able to track her that way because they i don't know i don't remember tim and lance mentioned on the show but i believe they tracked her scent just kind of to the middle of the road there were some question marks about that too was it yeah they
2: they said they tracked her about a hundred yards but Uh they said that the glove they used was a fairly new glove, so they weren't sure exactly how much scent was on it and if what scent they were tracking.
1: Right. But, yeah, based on that, it the indicate that she got into a car mm-hmm. because the scent. Did, but but they, they for sure would have been able to track her into the mountains. And remember, there was a dusting of snow on the ground. The only reason I could see that she would go into the mountains would be maybe because of that suspended driver's license thing. If, you know, she knew that once she knew that people were coming, if she, like, ran away. out. But, but I feel like they would have found her remains by now. It just, especially so many people looking, the fact that, that nothing was ever found of her. I, I couldn't see, I can see her running to the hills to hide from the cops, uh-huh. but not running to the hills and then continuing to walk through the mountains into the middle of nowhere in frigid temperatures.
2: What do you make of the whimpering phone call that her boyfriend received like a few days later? Explain that. So in the narrative, a couple days after her disappearance, her boyfriend received a phone call that couldn't be made out. But it sounded like a person kind of whimpering, breathing heavy, and that was the entire phone call. And they couldn't, they couldn't trace it. They couldn't find anything else. See, I just don't understand how they, how they couldn't trace it. Well, I believe they, I believe that when they traced it, it was traced back to a prepaid calling card. Okay, and that was the the
1: end of that because they couldn't. That was that was it. Right. Yeah, and they can't couldn't figure out which phone it came from or anything like that. Mm. It seems so unlikely in the two thousands that they couldn't figure that out.
2: But that's my question: is I mean, is that a is that a true? Do you, do we feel that that's a true story? Do we? I mean,
1: that's a weird one. There's no way to know. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of people that still suspect Bill Roush to this day, even though I mean it it's seemingly impossible for him to have been there. Yeah, because he was in
2: Oklahoma, I believe. Right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and they have his call records, and then. You know, there's some people have been, you know, that, that show where he was at and something's like, well, yeah, but that's that's an Eastern time. and center. He could have very quickly got on a plane and got there and, you know, somehow left the army base. And it just it. Yeah. So it, it's hard to know. One of the stories I heard, and again, it was more in just a little bit of research I did, was that
2: a lot of her family said that she used prepaid calling cards. So I think that's mm-hmm. kind of where that theory came from. of Like, well, it must have been her because it was tracked back to a prepaid calling card. Right. Or maybe it was wishful thinking
1: yeah it could be i I mean I don't know I just I'm just trying to look like look at the elements of the crime scene surely if her plan was to run away and start a new life mm-hmm. that's not how she was gonna do it you know you you pull up and park at a bus station and get on a bus and disappear you don't park in the middle of the road somewhere unless the, the 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 no cell service in the area is a big one that really really makes that difficult to me like the only thing the only way I think that's possible is if she got in a vehicle. With you know, a passerby and was like, Hey, I need a ride, and then took off. But then, you know, she I don't know that she had much cash, mm-hmm. so they should be able to track her by credit card or whatever. Like, like, how, there's just she didn't have the means to do it. But even that seems, you know, the fact that that she didn't want help from Butch Atwood, you know, she wasn't, didn't, it, it didn't seem to be looking for help, but then maybe got in the car. I think once she realized her phone wasn't working, it was cold, she was stuck there. And figured maybe Butch Atwood was going to be calling the police after she talked to him. That maybe the next car that came by, she said, I need a ride. And this is just a hypothesis on my part. But the only thing that makes sense to me is that she willingly got in a vehicle with someone looking for a ride. And that person killed her. Or at least abducted her. It's the only thing that makes sense to me. Because if that person picked her up and she's like, certainly she wouldn't say, don't tell anyone because I'm going to run away and don't want anybody to know where I'm at. She wouldn't say that. It'd be, hey, can you just drop me off here? Duh. And then all of a sudden they see everyone's looking for this woman. That person would come forward mm-hmm. and be like, hey, I saw her. I picked her up. I was there. You know,
2: and, and back to the original question about her starting a new life, you know, there there has been sightings of her in, in Canada. So they say. Not credible sightings. Not credible yeah. sightings, but there's been sightings of her in Canada. But that was uh, when I first saw the picture of her. I was like, I've seen that girl. Right. She, you know, I mean, she's a, I don't, I mean, not to be mean or, I mean, it's not being mean, but like, she's a very generic looking American woman.
1: Yeah. Kind of vanilla. Yeah. And and I
2: can see how people would mistake, you know, if you or I went to Canada together and they didn't see both of us, they'd be like, yeah, I saw that guy. It could have been either one of us. The big bearded tattooed white guy. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I, there's not a lot of credible witnesses out there that say that they've seen her.
1: I, yeah, I, I've, I've always, well, it actually says it in the intro of Tim and Lance's podcast that. Since then, there has never been a credible sighting, so nothing that was ever able to be verified anyway. But, you know, yeah, I, I think that I, I definitely don't think she just took off and started a new life. There's just no, there's no path to that for me. I can't, I can't, my brain can't find a path to that happening. The only thing that makes sense to me is there's two things. One, that she would have gone to the mountains and succumbed to the elements and through animal predation or whatever, somehow her remains were never found. I don't think that happened. I, again, I could see her going up in the mountains to get away from the road where no one could see her. But not continuing to walk miles into a, the mountains in hypothermic conditions. Um, so that I'm left with she probably got into a car with somebody who she thought was going to help her, and it turned out to be a bad actor that probably killed her. I would think.
0: All right. Our last question comes from Richard. What has been analyzed and scrutinized more, the Zabruder film or Mara Murray's case?
1: Huh. Uh, I first of all, I I would say for sure the Zabruder film. Um, well
2: I would I would agree because I didn't hear about this case until we did this. Right.
1: Yeah. And everybody's heard of this a brood film. And that's the 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 filming of the guy that was filming the the JFK assassination, which is a good place to end on because not we're a little confused. So Mike and I are on vacation next week. So we're we're recording like a million podcasts this week to get ahead. So we're trying to keep track of the scheduling. But not this Sunday, but next Sunday. We are doing an episode, because it will be on November 22nd, which is the 57th anniversary of the assassination of JFK. That day, uh, the 22nd again, so not this Sunday, the Sunday after, our episode is going to be on the JFK assassination. And so we'll be talking a little bit about this Zabruder film. So that is coming up next Sunday. But in two days, this Sunday, I have Dr. Scott from the LA Not So Confidential podcast. He's a forensic psychologist coming on to discuss the murder of lacey peterson and more so the psychology behaviors of scott peterson where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yomnik, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 per month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com you can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth. Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach can be found at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, I'm Zach Weaver, and I'm Mike Bussing. This has been Truth and Justice.